Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 15, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Now that the FIFA is done for the next quadrennial, we can focus not so much on teams, but on other tribes, tribes everywhere under duress. Uh, I got a chance to check out some of the uh, guest action, uh, folks that I interviewed, see them at their openings and their activities, and it was one wildly wonderful weekend, plus other things I was glad to do. So uh, I'm encouraging everybody to stop by the Irvine Gallery of the Arts uh, and uh, also at the Orange County Fairgrounds. So right now, as for today's show, the soup is on and it's at a bargain price with my first guest, Leanne Brown, author of a low-cost cookbook for households making do on food stamps. Then my second guest will be Dick Ackerman with a venture that has consequences with both Irvine planning as well as municipal electoral outcomes. Good to know these kinds of things. So don't go away. We'll be right back after a very short break. I promised a short break. That's because I've got lots to cover today. Thank you for staying and joining with us today. My first guest is Leanne Brown. Leanne is an advocate for better food system focused on a return to home cooking. As the final project for her master's degree in food studies at New York University, she created Good and Cheap, certainly a beautiful book of recipes designed for a $4 a day food stamps budget. As well, she released a PDF of the book free online. After the publication went viral, she decided she had exceeded she exceeded her goal to raise. Excuse me, I'm going to step it back. After the publication went viral, she decided to launch a Kickstarter campaign for print copies with a give one get one model, like uh, the Tom shoes. In her campaign, she's created her goal to raise uh, two thousand ten thousand dollars, but she's actually raised one hundred and forty over one hundred forty four thousand dollars from. 5,636 backers, enough to donate, I, I figure, to calculate here, about 30, over 36,000 copies of the book to nonprofits that work with low-income families. Before she moved to New York, she worked in city politics in her hometown of Edmonton, Alberta, and she comes to us today from the East Coast. Which city again, Leanne? New York City. From the, <laughs> and from the Big Apple. Welcome to the show, <laughs> Leanne. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight. Well, it's ours because it's giving us a, an eye on yet another vital enterprise that we all ought to be aware of and see where we can uh, pitch in in whatever kinds of fashions. Well, let's start food studies. It's an emerging concern on college campuses, in the media, and in the legislative arena. We had a workshop here at UCI last spring, which I found very edifying. Leanne, how did you get interested in this line of work and study? Ah, good question. Well, you know, I think it's just always been something I've been really fascinated by. Um, but I didn't, like so many people, I didn't really know that food studies was a thing that you could study until a few years ago. Um, they actually, so I'm Canadian, and I was in Canada, my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta, 
Um, I was working in city politics, actually, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but when I actually was a assistant to a city councilor, and so that means you do all kinds of different things. And uh, I found myself really interested in the food policy work um, around encouraging people to eat locally and around the preservation of agricultural lands and that kind of thing. But I also found that I wasn't able to spend as much time on those things as I wanted to. Um, so after a few years, I began to search out how I might focus uh, my life and my career more around food studies. And I found this NYU food studies program, which is uh, the oldest in the country. So the, how old? It's the very first. How old I think is it? It's about 12 years old so now. Know. Wow. Okay. Um, I should know that. Um, but, uh, but still, you know, pretty young, uh, only sort of around in the 2000s. And uh, I was just so drawn to it. The way that they described the sort of person that they wanted to be in the program, it sounded like they were just describing me exactly. And so I knew I had to apply. Well, I noticed when you talk about this line of work, the impact that f- it covers what the, the impact food has on the environment, the ethics exactly. of eating, how does food contribute to systems of oppression? I mean, really, as we politicize what um, food production and distribution are about, they're symbolizing uh, markers of identity. I mean, we can think oh, about yeah, that, what, where you absolutely. go. And uh, so we, we can all talk about any of those and who chooses what we eat and why. I mean, we've learned about uh, the, the idea that food is now the fish is all being we're exporting our fish and we're eating the food that's being imported. So that's a that's a sort of another realm. And and how oh, foods yeah. are traditionally prepared, that's where you come in here. And the, yeah. the boundary between the authentic culinary heritage and invented traditions. So that's like I, I, it's been brought to my attention. The the food that the recent immigrants bring to the let's say the service sector, what what we where we can mm-hmm. eat out those that was been brought to my attention. The recent immigration, that's the authentic food. And the longer that uh, enterprise has remained in our country, the more it's been homogenized. So we get, you know, the uh, the taco, taco whatevers um, that are uh, no longer the the fresh vended item, but now a high, much more highly processed uh, and uh, right. homogenized item. So um, so. Uh, well, let's let's talk about any one of those uh, more that is that's drawn you as you uh, were preparing your and go into your first book from scratch. Oh, sure. Um, so you wanted me to, to speak about from scratch a little bit, or well, I I realize I've opened up like six thousand cans of worms there, yeah. but but let's any <laughs> yeah. of those those lines of study, the impacts and the ethics, and any of those that you found uh, really where you spent so much of your time in, in the, at the NY program and after During the program? Well, I think that I was really drawn to a lot of those things. I think, the, you know, as you mentioned, it, different people tended to study different sorts of things. So some people would focus on uh, culture, so around food and identity, as you were mentioning. And I think that's a really good point, that um, the sort of first-generation immigrants bring a certain flavor. And then as people stay and you get into the second and third generation, um, it becomes more a part of the, um, the overall food system, which just, yeah, at, the, at this moment tends to, to be highly processed. Although I think that there's, um, there's a part of our culture that is getting away from that to a certain extent and that very processed foods are now becoming um, uh, seen as what they are, which is fairly unhealthy and really boring food as well, um, which is something that I, I kind of tried to focus on. Um, so when 
basically during my studies, what I focused on was around the food system. And I think that as a Canadian, I had a different perspective on uh, the food stamps program in particular. How's because that? we don't have a similar program in Canada. Um, we have a welfare, of course, but we don't have a, a particular um, a, a particular thing for people to simply get food. What we do is we give people who have a certain, uh, a particularly low income, they, they get money and they're allowed to budget for food. They don't get specific food stamps, the EBT card. Um, and, and I think just because, you know, it wasn't something that I was totally inured to um, through growing up with it, it was something that I, I found myself drawn to continually and really studying more. I'm sorry. Um, how does that work? That EBT card. So it's um, it's not a rationing. Or what what's happened? How does that differ with what their food stamp oh, program here is? Sure. Well, so here, basically, if you qualify for food stamps, they'll give you a certain amount based on your income level up to um, around four dollars a day per person. And so they'll either top you up, you know, give you just a couple more dollars. Um, per day, or they'll give you the full amount if you qualify for the full amount. Um, so you get a certain amount put on your card at the beginning of the month, and you are just able to spend that on food at uh, any grocery store. Um, and if you're a little, there's a few new things, like if you're older and it's really difficult for you to prepare food, there are a few outlets, like I believe um, Subway and a couple of other places that allow um, people to spend their, their card there. That's for people who really are, have difficulty preparing food at home. Um, and then there's also a number of farmers markets which take EBT cards. Like every single one in uh, in New York right now takes uh, takes food stamps, the EBT card, and a lot of them have these wonderful programs uh, where they will double um, the value of uh, if you buy fruits and vegetables at the farmers market, they will give you two dollars back on your card for every five dollars you spend, which means essentially that uh, you can get significantly more fresh fruits and vegetables from the farmer's market than you otherwise would. Well, that incentive um, does speak well to the policy of, uh, well, what's been going on from the, the White House backyard to uh, our backyards and parking lots. That's great. <laughs> right, yeah, and it's, very, it's become very popular all over the country. You have these uh, double-value coupon programs, um, and they've been, they're great. And it seems like every year, the first year, they sort of start off doing okay, and then they get more and more popular every year afterwards as word spreads about them. And, and it's great because it not only helps, obviously people have access to really lovely, delicious fruits and vegetables, but it also helps the farmer as well and means that, you know, the EBT uh, cards are being spent at a place that also helps uh, local farmers. Well, I'm thinking of two, two aspects of that, that one, it, it also brings that household to a center that is bursting with resourceful uh, approaches to, to eating and so that yeah. you're, you're sort of there's an encouragement there and a, and a um, lots of lots of ideas and it's more of an exchange I think than you get uh, in a traditional supermarket and the other is I'd like to I think that, that an audit of how much more food is taking advantage of that farmers market fresh produce incentive a, a PhD to, to, to audit all of that because I'm, I'm not sure if uh, the um, the federal agency is tracking that closely, but it would be great to know how, how much oh, that's absolutely. working. absolutely. And a lot of my colleagues are, are doing that kind of work, um, sort of figuring out how much those uh, incentives work um, and, and sort of moving forward how, how things would work. Well, I'll, I want to keep touch uh, with you or uh, any colleagues of yours. We could get a really good handle on that for a lot of Oh, absolutely. Uh, I could hook you up with some great people doing very cool 
work around the sort of economics of it. Okay, folks. So you know what the programming is going to be. Maybe that'll be a really good holiday program. So, <laughs> or thanks or Thanksgiving. We'll, we'll we'll meet there at camera too. So for those of you who've just tuned in. It's Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming in kitchens, markets, all over the world on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Leanne Brown, author of Good and Cheap, a low-cost cookbook to bring very affordable and tasty recipes to households on very small budgets. So you wrote up first from scratch. Just tell us a little bit about that book before we go into the good and cheap Sure, yeah. So From Scratch was my very first cookbook. Um, it was something I did, as I mentioned before, I, uh, I, was a, I worked for a city councilor, and when I decided that I needed to move on from that and do uh, food-related things, I decided just to kind of go for it and make my own cookbook. But um, it was there, and it was really meant to be, I was thinking about my friends and family and people who I know very well who are not maybe so comfortable in the kitchen. Um, and I wanted to spread to them uh, my joy, the joy that I have when I'm cooking and make some just accessible recipes that would be appealing to them um, and that they would have uh, an easy time making. Um, so I, I just I taught myself design and a bit more uh, photography and just kind of messed around and learned how to really write a recipe in a way that uh, that worked for people. And then I published it and uh as a print-on-demand kind of thing, and I just sold it at a craft fair locally. Uh, it was it was a pretty sort of casual affair, but it was kind of a good practice run. All right, so let's then transition into your uh, where the where the rubber meets the road or the spatula hits the bowl uh, with <laughs> your good and cheap. You uh, you already started the project, but you realized if you had some more funding, you could make it have a broader reach and a deeper impact. Tell us how you decided to take up the Kickstarter with this this idea of good and cheap. Sure, you bet. Well, so I, I had already more or less finished uh, finished the cookbook, um, and I'd made it available online, and, and it became really popular very quickly. Um, some people on Reddit and Tumblr and a few other places discovered it, and suddenly I had huge amounts of traffic to my website, and people people were downloading it. Um, about 90,000 people downloaded it in the first week, and, you know, I just, I'd really just started my website just a few weeks before I was getting maybe like 25 or 30 people a day. It was nothing, and then suddenly I had thousands and thousands of people, um, and, and basically that let me know that this really was a project that was useful to people. I started to get emails. I think one of the very first emails I got was from this guy who said, you know, I'm a student and I'm on food stamps for the first time next year, um, starting in just a month or so. And I was really scared that I was just going to be eating top ramen and rice. And uh, your cookbook has come along at just the right time, and now I know I'm going to be able to be okay and eat well. And it was just like, ugh, just like a dagger of goodness into my heart. And uh, I got so many other, I've had so much feedback that's similar to that since then from all kinds of people, from families to single people, um, people who've been around for um, for a long time just looking for something different, um, a little bit of, of hope and some new ideas, and that was just so motivating to me. And I realized that it's great that it's online, but I really need to do everything I could to promote it because the more people that knew about it, the better. And that I also needed to look offline as well because there's a lot of people who don't have access to computers um, who could use the book as well. And so that's what really led to the Kickstarter for uh, for the printed version, because of course I can make uh, the PDF free online, but I can't make 
a book itself free because books cost money. So I needed to ask people for help with that one. Well, Leanne, it is a lovely creation, not just with mouth-watering recipes, but you've got useful pointers to uh, lift a diner spirits toward meeting their several dietary and their fiscal goals all at once. It's just, it's lovely formatted. Did, did you want to give a credit here with uh, any of the, you must have had food stylists. I mean, it's it's just quite the lovely thing. <laughs> no, actually, it was just me uh, in my really? apartment. Um, my partner, Dan, helped me a little bit with uh, some of the photography and with the design. He is more knowledgeable than I am, but really it was, it was actually just me. Um, it's not... I think people think it's a lot harder to do, but really when you, especially when you're using beautiful, colorful fruits and vegetables, it's actually not that hard to take a good photo. You just need good light and pretty food. Well, it, it does all of that. And so, um, <laughs> well, um, what, uh, how, what kind of assumptions do you make about your clientele, your target group in terms of equipment, food preferences, and food needs? Well, so I tried to just create a variety of things. Um, actually, that was really challenging when I began. I sort of started with a bunch of assumptions, and I had a lot of... Uh, I, I, there were a lot of things that I ended up cutting from the books that I just didn't feel were all that interesting. Um, there are a lot of uh, things like rice and beans, which are fantastic, but I realized that I didn't need to add those to the book because that was something that people kind of already know how to make. Um, and I wanted to make stuff that was a little bit different, sort of stuff that people don't think of generally as budget food, um, sort of modern food. Um, and then in terms of equipment, uh, I really assumed initially that people were going to have very minimal kitchens. But then I also, in my spare time, lead grocery store tours um, for WIC moms. And well, well, for WIC families. Uh, so WIC is the Women with Infant Children program, and it's it's sort of it's similar to food stamps, um, but it's a little bit more specific. It's for pregnant moms up till uh, their child is the age of five, and and it allows access to uh, various kinds of healthcare, as well as specific um, specific foods. So things like uh, certain kinds of cereals, milk, uh, and fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, rather than just sort of a general uh, food allotment. It's for very specific foods that are um, considered to be very nutritionally important for children um, under five. Um, but when I was working with uh, these WIG families, what I, I realized is actually a lot of people have more kitchen equipment than, um, than I realized. And so I, I just tried to create uh, things that would be useful for people who had minimal kitchens to even up to things like uh, people who might have blenders and, and stuff like that as well, because I did find that uh, the people had a variety of, of equipment at their disposal. Okay, okay. And I, I noticed in the reuse market, you know, you can, um, for very inexpensive, you can get increasingly more sophisticated kinds of gadgets. And it, Absolutely. It really, so yeah, it's, I mean, we create those things quite easily, and uh, a lot of people throw them away to get the newest model, and so you can usually find them for for pretty inexpensive rates. Well, I'm trying to think now in terms of how this distribution uh, works. Um, you're talking about uh, moving from the printed to the, uh, from the PDF online to the printed version, and you were talking about in- incentives uh, for doubling on the value of the EBT card. So I'm just wondering if your distribution for some of the, I know there's uh, the uh, the food, certain food um I guess nonprofits. I'm just also wondering if, I mean, market 
farmers markets are a pretty decentralized location. You may not be getting a lot of people, but I'm wondering if sort of the market managers for uh, larger population areas would be a, workful, a workable idea, as well as distributing them at soup kitchens where lots of people turn out. You're absolutely right. And I've had uh, people from all those sorts of organizations applying to be distributors. Um, definitely people, market managers have had a number of those, a lot of food pantries, a lot of soup kitchens, um, all kinds of um, places that also a lot of uh, people who work with um, like clinics who work with fairly disadvantaged populations as well, who are just sort of looking for... We have a lot of clients who come in and just really need to eat healthier food, but say that it's too difficult um, on a small budget or, you know, are generally just having difficulty. A lot of um, a lot of clinics who work with people like that are, are also applying. So um, I've kind of left it open at the moment. I haven't uh, chosen who everything is going to, but... Um, I think I'd like to spread them around all over the place as much as possible. So how many copies have you been able to print so far? So we haven't printed anything yet. That printing is going to happen in September. So part of my Kickstarter promises was I was going to create 20 new recipes uh, in consultation with 20 backers who sponsored recipes. So that's what I'm going to work on now. Okay. Um, And then, and also just adding some additional, uh, I sort of, didn't realize just how excited people were about all the, the tips for shopping um, and saving money. So I'm going to beef up those sections a little bit as well um, and, and just add a few other things uh, that people have suggested that I add. And then we will get it off hopefully by mid-August. And then because it's going to be such a big print run, it's going to take a little while to print. So I'm hoping that we'll have it by mid-September So what um, you- ready to ship out to people. Okay. So I'll just remind folks who just tuned in at this point, I'm talking with Leanne Brown, and she is the author of Good and Cheap, a low-cost cookbook to bring very affordable and very tasty recipes to households on your small budgets. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to crack it open and uh, work with that uh, myself, and I've got a little more to work with, I guess, that certainly. Um, so, uh, well, a little sneak preview, what those new 20 recipes might be that you're in- incorporating into the next iteration? Oh, sure. Well, um, I'm not sure what they'll all be yet, but I have uh, notes from a few people already. Um, There's one fellow who is a second-generation Filipino immigrant, Uh and he has this wonderful story um, about uh, his, his, his family in the Philippines. A lot of them are still there, and he's able to sort of act um, as uh, a real help to his family, especially his nieces and nephews. Um, and uh, whenever he goes back there, they usually have uh, Filipino adobo, and it's this wonderful meal that everyone really enjoys, but it's very inexpensive, and, and food is such a wonderful family thing for him uh, that he would like to include uh, some version of Filipino adobo in the book, which I would be, I'm thrilled to do. Um yeah, so that's, so that's one. I have another fellow who um, works for New York City Public Schools in their um, farm, in their attempts to uh, get more farm-fresh uh, vegetables and fruits into New York City uh, Public School cafeterias. And so he wants to do something like the uh, farm-to-school salad, um, which I'm going to work with him on. Um, and yeah, just a few things like that. It's anywhere from people with just a small idea to a really important family recipe. Um, and it's great. It's going to be really fun for me. Now, it was I don't remember seeing this on, on the portion I viewed, but does the, the did the Kickstarter campaign include solicitation for some recipes? 
No. Um, I can't, essentially, I can't add more recipes than these 20. It's going to be, it's going to add probably about 40, 45 more pages to the book. Oh, yeah. Um, And anything beyond that, it will become much more expensive to print. So that's kind of the max. Um, So what I did was I made, very early on, I made uh, one of the reward levels was get uh, get a recipe one, right. and that was the $100 level. I've made only 20 of them, and they sold out within the first couple of days um, of people who would be able to sort of make a recipe with me. Mm. Okay. Well, um, as we're talking about this, uh, is there a way in which our listeners can assist your venture at this point? Sure. Well, actually, so the Kickstarter is over, um, but I actually on my website have created a store where people can still order the book. Um, and order uh, the same get one, give one, get one, give two um, as I had on um, on the Kickstarter. So you can still do that if you just go to uh, leannebrown.ca or you can even just Google Good and Cheap and you should be able to find it. Um, but if you go to the cookbook section um, and just click on the buy one option uh, or rather reserve one for when it comes out, uh, people can still, uh, still get those and still sponsor uh, donated copies as well. Okay. So either in that form or we can take the PDF, take it to all oh, of our of yeah. market and of managers. Course you can get uh, the PDF for free on my website, and, and I've encouraged everyone to definitely do that. To, to get the word out that uh, there is a publication forthcoming. So you said you put the order in in September. How long does it take before we've got product? There? Well, I'm hoping, I mean, I can't guarantee. I'm really hoping they said it will take uh, three to four weeks to print, which is why I'm hoping to get it into them in mid-August so that I can have it done for September. But because of just the incredible uh, interest there was, so much more than I had initially thought, it means that it's actually going to take longer for them to act physically print because we're doing such a large print run, as you said. Um, it's 26000 that I'm going to be making available at the super discounted $4 rate, um, and then about 6000 I think a little bit more, will be uh, purely donated, um, and then another five or six on top of that that's going to be going out directly to people who purchased it. So that's, you know, something over about 35000 um, are going to be printed, which just takes time. Okay. Well, Leanne, I, we've come to a close. I really honor what you've uh, run with here and providing such a vital social uh, product here for for people that uh, really could use this kind of a help. It's so it's such such a beautiful creation. I want to thank you, Leanne Brown, author of Good and Cheap, this low cost cookbook, brightening kitchens that uh, could use the help. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Okay. Take care. Well, we'll be right back after a short break and uh, bring up Mr. Dick Ackerman to talk about his Irvine Cares. Be right back. Welcome back to Ask Leader. Thanks, everybody, for staying with us here. That was Strenz and Farah. It's a Costa Rican Persian ensemble that was Rio de Colores, just in case you were wondering. Now, back to the subject at hand. My next guest uh, for this part of the show is Dick Ackerman, who's announced the founding launching of Irvine Cares, the subject of today's program. Senator Ackerman has lived the last 
15 years uh, in Irvine. Prior to that, moving to, uh, moving here in Irvine, he lived in Fullerton for 29 years. He served as mayor there, city councilman, then on to state assemblyman and minority leader of the California State Senate until his retirement in 2008. He represented Irvine for eight years in the Senate. So after having been termed out in the California legislature, Dick Ackerman represented clients at the Nossman Law Firm as well as had a part-time teaching stint at UC Berkeley. He received his BA at UC Berkeley, I was in math, and his law degree at UC Hastings Law School. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dick Ackerman. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, very good. Well, let's start with what actually Irvine Cares is. Let's and uh, let's talk about what its charter is. Basically, its charter is to put out uh, information about the city of Irvine and positive information, so people can feel good about the city they live in. Uh, too many times, I think every time you pick up the newspaper or turn on the TV, all you get is the bad news, the negative news about what's going on. And we decided it's time to put out good news about uh, communities and especially Irvine, which has a lot of good things to be proud of. Okay, we'll, we'll get to the we, uh, and we'll get to the, the good news. I think there's been lots of good news for, for a long time, so it's, it's, uh, we're interested in uh, how, how this form goes. So who is the we when you say we decided? We just, just a group of business people and individuals. I've been, been in politics for about 30 years, and like I say, I've seen too many times where too many times the, the negatives get ex- accentuated and the positives don't get, e- get even mentioned. And there's been a lot of issues in Irvine over the past 15, 20, 30 years, uh, and some of them in positive and some of them being negative. And just a group of us decided to get together and, and just do a website and try and communicate with people in Irvine and find out what they think and then basically put out, uh, put out positive news and just, you know, news about the city. And the news sources, I, so far I noticed on the the Irvine Cares, the sources are the Orange County Register. Will there be um, other sources that you'll be incorporating? Uh, you just launched it in July 1, so what, what other sources will you be tapping into to spread the good news? All, all the media sources, you know, the Los Angeles Times, Orange County Register, the, a lot of the communities have local, uh, local publications, so anything that covers Irvine. Irvine, even though it's, a, it's one of the 30-odd cities in and Orange County gets coverage in a lot of other newspapers. Uh, so, you know, we're tied into a UCI, and we just want to, whatever sources are out there, that will provide us information, and you know, we'll, we will try and put it together. Well, I, I do want to find out more. You're talking about some businesses. Are there any particular ones that are really interested in working with you on this project? Well, we're, as you look on the website, we're, we're looking for additional <clears throat> support and people to help with us so like i say we're just we're just starting out we're we're the new kid on the block so we're looking for any individuals or businesses that might be willing to help out and think this is a good project uh we'd encourage them to sign up and help us out so but i just want to know about the ones that are already involved that are who've uh, had this this uh, the the brain be, uh, the brain children of uh, the, launching this project just who's already involved I think it's just it's a number of people. You know, I, I get a, get around and do a lot of things in a lot of, with a lot of people in Irvine. I talk with people on the city council. I talk with business people here, people on the Irvine Chamber. I've been active in the Irvine Chamber. I'm not a member, but I've been going to their events for a long time. OCBC uh, gives a lot of coverage to Irvine. 
lot of a lot of business groups have just mentioned that they think this would probably be a good idea. Okay. Well, we'll um, we'll we'll hold on that one. That that's uh, that there's always we we just love to know uh, who all likes to be um, who's involved and give them the the credit um, where credits due here. So. You talked about uh, this charter. It's a community-based group that will serve as a nonpartisan issues forum for Irvine residents. So, uh, would I notice that you're you're accepting uh, comments and survey responses? Are you uh, so? Could it be also a forum for people to post news as well? Does it accept news uh, tidbits? Sure, <clears throat> we we put out a just a, the first thing we put out a little uh, four or five question poll. A couple of days ago, uh, we have roughly an email list of just under 23,000 people in the city of Irvine who are, uh, most of it comes from the voter registrar, uh, but other sources for emails. So we put out a little poll to get their interest in a couple of ideas, and we got some pretty good response, actually better response than that you'd normally get on some of these email poll-type uh, situations. Uh, but, yeah, we, we will accept information if people have ideas. And, in fact, I've talked to, I've talked to I think, everybody on the council except uh, one, and we're asking them if they have ideas, uh, they have information. A lot of times things happen at City Hall that don't make the newspaper, but they're, they're newsworthy for the people in Irvine. Well, I, I uh, speak for myself, and I don't know if the listeners um, uh, have a... Uh, will attest to something similar, but I um, I am a registered voter since '91 here in Irvine. I didn't get uh, I, I'm not on your list. How how did I get missed? Uh, did you <clears throat> did you when you registered to vote on if you vote absentee, everybody has an opportunity to put an email address on there. Some people elect to do that. Some people do not. Uh, if you give me your email address, I'll make sure you're on it. Uh, we have other sources for just from various things out there where you can get email lists, but some people don't like to have their email address out, and we respect that. Uh, but we can certainly get you on, get you on there. So that, that is a hefty number, 23,000. Where, where else did the, the, what other sources did you use to get the, uh, those emails? We have, we have a guy that designed the website, and he, he uh, most, most of them, I think, are from the Registrar of Voters, I'm guessing maybe 80 or 90 percent. But there are other sources that are public records where people put their email address on, and it's actually getting more common now, as you might expect. But it's not; it doesn't have a hundred percent coverage yet. Okay, okay. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Dick Ackerman. He's the founder and chairman of recently launched Irvine Cares here on Ask a Leader on eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at kuci.org. Well, when you find an organization, there's a vision. So, uh, Mr. Dick Ackerman, tell me, what is this, what's your vision about where you're going to take Irvine Cares? What, do you, what kind of outcomes are you looking for? Get, get more people in the community involved in issues and let them know what's going on. You know, some people are very involved in, in local and other issues. Some people are not. Uh, and there's a lot of things that Irvine is involved uh, with, which and some of them are, I think are very noteworthy, and we want to make sure that people in the city of Irvine get that information. I think it really helps if you have a city that's informed, and UCI has, or UCI, my mixed metaphors here, the city of Irvine has a very high education rate, and people, I think, are more apt to be involved in this community than in other communities. 
so we want to make sure that they have all the information they have so when issues come up, they'll be prepared to, uh, you know, get involved in them. I notice it's you've organized as you as we were preparing for this interview. You told me that it's organized under the five hundred one c four. Is there a, a reason why that versus the five hundred one c three? You have to ask our legal beagles. <laughs> we we basically cannot get involved in political things, uh, and it's it's designed as an educational uh, forum. And uh, I wasn't I didn't discuss that with the attorney, which is the, the better forum. I think the. C3 deduct the contributions are deductible and because it's more charitable if you will and the C4s I think are not deductible and it's it's perceived as more of an educational one but not not on the line as a charity. Well, and I guess with the C4 I think another sort of salient um, distinction is that you are not obligated under law to re- release the um, the actual sources of the funding for your project. I think that I think that is true too. Also, okay, okay. Well, um, well, let's let's go to that survey. This that you just what and when did that survey was it launched at the time that you launched on July one or is this this was just last week you were saying the survey it was uh, it's been actually sent out twice it's probably been sent out twice in the last uh, maybe ten days. Okay, so we'll let's take it. You've given five sort of issue areas, and I would love to. Uh, have you unpackaged them just a bit further, and I'll I'll list them, and we can elaborate on them uh, after listening. So, you want the email subscriber to rank amongst the five issues, rank them in order of priority. And so, first one is offer incentives in the form of tax credits and fee waivers for businesses to locate in Irvine. So that that one, tell us a bit of the background of of that with the given that what the vibrant economic development uh, climate that Irvine is in here as a, a huge agglomeration of many many sectors yeah Irvine Irvine is a very successful city and they have a very good business community but as you just watch other cities around the state and around the country who are having problems a lot of them uh, a lot of those problems are generated by not having a good business atmosphere and not encouraging businesses uh, to locate and to stay in their particular city. Irvine has a very good reputation of doing that, and this question was aimed at what other type of incentives would you want to give to businesses to make sure they stay uh, in your community. As you know, the as all this, all these sales tax and property tax, matter taxes that are generated by various businesses, the cities get a portion of that. So it's very important to have a strong business community uh, if your city is to remain successful. But those those are a state level uh, regulated uh, formula, though. So a, a city can't be more competitive by with that in mind, with the the state they, and the sales they, taxes. They can be less competitive. Oh, some cities, so some of our sister cities up north are leveling uh, additional taxes, and cities do have the ability to tax tax businesses. I guess increment of uh, sales. Irvine, Irvine does not. They have a business tax, but that's pretty usual. But some cities, particularly in the Bay Area, are putting additional restrictions and additional taxes, if you will, on businesses. And as a result, I think they're losing businesses. So part of the, part of the aim of this is just to point out to people that uh, if you put too many regulations and too many taxes on businesses, they may leave your community. Well, we know that uh, in Economic Development 101, the the biggest deal is available labor pool that draws. And we know we've got all these incubator arrangements in, uh, with the education system, not just the K-12, through and uh, but we have the, the UCI and Irvine Valley College. So we know that there are tremendous incentives 
already in place? Are we, is there a trade-off that we're going to give up some funds for the general treasury for the city by giving those incentives that may, may not necessarily be necessary? Yeah, there, there's always a trade-off. You know, you don't want to give away the store and get involved in corporate welfare uh, just to get businesses in here. It has, it has to make economic sense. And so this question is put out there to sort of gauge what people are thinking. Okay. Do, they, do they think we should just, you know, give any kind of tax advantage, tax incentive to businesses or there should there be limits? And I think the responses, you could tell a little bit, uh, the responses generally were that we should treat uh, businesses well, but it wasn't overwhelmingly. Okay. So the second one, I'm going to not really spend much time on, but I'll just list it as one of the five that you're asking surveyors to, to rank. Is Our leaders should work to stop the hostile takeover of Allergan and save the 2,000 high-paying jobs that will be lost forever if the takeover is successful. And I guess the assumption is a takeover means a move out of the municipality. But is that that's what it is that's okay yeah. the yeah. third one is create incentives for residences and businesses to use local contractors to make homes and businesses business energy um, efficient so the, there's the shift uh, to there are plenty of local contractors this is a sort of a, a local economic development tool that in the item number three of the survey yes and some some communities are being very active about trying to use local contractors other cities are not and obviously there's arguments pro and con on that and we sort of wanted to get a feeling about uh, how the people in irvine felt about that well that's great and i hope then our uh, state legislative delegation can be really um, up to date on that because i I think that sector gets overlooked when uh, the legislature uh, talks about energy policy and the the climate um, conditions and that kind of a thing. So that's uh, that's a good one. So I'm really interested in the item number four, accelerate the development of heritage fields and the Great Park, creating thousands of high-paying jobs and expanding our recreational opportunities. That's, that's could we could go on until uh, after George had a hat show finished at 1 a.m. p.m. today. But uh, let's talk about that, accelerating the development and... Uh, w- Tell us about what you have in mind with that. Well, I think it's not necessarily what I have in mind because I've, I've watched the Great Park uh, uh, planning and so on go on before I even moved to Irvine. I think many people are concerned that there's been a lot of talk and a lot of money spent on the Great Park, and right now there's not a whole lot uh, to show for it. The the uh, the housing development's sort of been delayed, and some of the other development has been delayed. Redevelop, redevelopment concept was eliminated a few years ago, which was one of the mainstays, I think, for trying to develop it. So I think people would like to see something happen. They, they may not always know exactly what they want to have happen, but they know they've got a lot of parcel. They got a big parcel out there, and I think they would like to see something happen. Well, I know in terms of good news, Dick, it's, um, I thought the really good news, I'm not sure it got its circulation. Uh, I know, and I want to find out your experience of this too, Dick, is that the good news from the Great Park was there were free concerts, that they were at the city was able to leverage bookings that were coming through town and have them swing by for free concerts there in the summer, lots of cool get-togethers. There's the Food and Farm Lab, which... That's in jeopardy. We know it's going to happen, but that was, that's still really good news. There, there were the really well-attended uh, New Year's Eve parties that were there. I think there might have been a total two or three. I'm not sure. And there were those artists in residence that came from all over the world. What, what some of those good news did you get to experience personally, Dick? I, I've, been, I've been out there just 
I've been taking people on the, when my relatives come out, they want to see what's going on out there, so I take them out. Uh, I have not personally gone to those events, uh, but I read about them. I keep up about them. I think they they are popular. Uh, I know a couple times we I think we had the Circus Day Olay out there at one 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 point in time. So I think the capacity and the ability to bring more events like that uh, is there. I think again they have to make economic sense. We can't <clears throat> you can't give everything free forever. I mean you can do some things, but I think the potential for continuing those kind of events out there is tremendous. And and the feedback we've got from the people, they didn't. Some of them, some people actually wrote out responses about what they thought. Uh, others just put the number down there. But I think most people felt that they wanted to see something continuing out there and something positive happening. Well, oh, and the solar decathlon, I, I forgot to mention that one. That was that went on a long time, and it was uncanny. We got to have the solar decathlon here during the uh, the government shutdown. Had it been at its usual Washington right. Mall site, <laughs> it would not have occurred, but it was here, and it will happen again in 2015. But I, I couldn't imagine better news than having uh, the best collegiate minds putting together the a state-of-the-art engineering of zero net, um, net I'm sorry, net zero uh, energy usage and uh, uh, other sort of aesthetic aspects. And uh, did you get a chance to go to the solar decathlon when it was here or the, the road races? Uh, the, the I, length? I, I followed it daily in the, in the newspaper and I think you're right. I think it was a very successful thing. It was very positive. Plus it brought out not just positive uh, news for the city, but good ideas and uh, using a lot of talent that we have right in our own backyard. So I, I see that these things have, uh, there's a public good in bringing the cultural and uh, other kinds of forums that the Great Park had uh, originally uh, set up, even on a shoestring, because as we know, the Great Recession, the redevelopment funds, both of those things dried up what was going to be the sort of phasing in. And, and you know, and admittedly, these things take a while to, to, to build these kinds of institutions. We know that from the other models around the country. But uh, so I, I think our, our eyes and ears are on whether we're going to see any continuation of those public goods. Can you give us uh, what Irvine cares cares about in that respect? I don't, I can't get, my crystal ball is not that good, uh, but I know, like you say, there's been a lot of activities going out there. Cal State Fullerton used to have a campus there, and it was very successful for a long time. Uh, back when I was still in the legislature, I had contact from some uh, Native American uh, folks who were trying to put a museum out there as part of the thing uh, is ultimately designed for more permanent permanent uh, displays, and I think they're still trying to look at it. So I think there's a lot of possibility. I can't I can't tell you what the final thing is going to look at, and I don't know if anybody can. Uh, but I think the the amount of space out there and the possibilities are endless, and you you've uh, named a number of them there, and hopefully some of those will become permanent. And Bill Cook, who's been advancing the Veterans Cemetery there, and I know Mark Chamberlain has been involved with the Legacy Project. So uh, is that is that going to enter in some, some of those kinds of uses in the, the public good of the Great Park Survey that you're going to continue on your website? And I can't tell you, but we'll probably be surveying some of those things in future. We attended 
put out more of these surveys, building on stuff we get from the first ones, and I'm sure they'll be included in future surveys. Because I, I see that the fifth item in the ranking uh, in the survey you're taking is to pursue a professional sports team at the Great Park to complement a state-of-the-art entertainment zone. So how, uh, what, to what extent does the entertainment zone and the, the uh, envisioned sports team, would that encompass of the square acreage of the Great Park remaining to be built out? Yeah, I don't know the square acreage, but I can give you the result of that. That sports team has been kicked around for a long time, and I don't know if anybody has seriously tried to contact it, but the people in the city were, that was, of all the ones, that was probably the strongest one saying no. No to the sports team. No to a professional sports team. Yeah, not necessarily the sports center. I think the sports center is good, but to a professional sports team, that was the strongest one we got back from a negative for a negative answer. Well, let's say uh, we're wa- I'm I'm wanting to have it all, and I, or I want to make sure uh, certain successes that are getting institutionalized now will continue. Were we to have the complete build out of the state of the art entertainment zone, is there room left over for a solar decathlon to take place after 2015? That I, I couldn't tell you. I don't. I'm not. I'm not a the planner type. But uh, <clears throat> one thing we hope to discover and putting out additional polls to find out what interest the people have. And I think that, that, I think that was a very popular event, and I would think uh, hopefully it would, would be included, but I couldn't tell you. My, like I said, my crystal ball is not that good. Well, I know how involved you are, and you've got friends in high places, and uh, you know what I want to do, Dick? I want to meet you at the, uh, the VIP opening. I'll get my press credential. I want to meet you at the Solar Decathlon next year. Can we do that? We can do it. I, I want to. I want to date with you. I'm I, not that I need witnesses, but I. I, I just. <laughs> I just know I, I brought. I went there three times, and uh, for, first is just to you know find out who's going to be my guest on my show, and then to uh, I, I was so proud of. I even drug a less than enthusiastic teenager with me, and uh, <laughs> some others, and everybody was really quite uh, taken by the vigor and the ideas. And I, I was hoping like maybe some of them would t- transfer to some of the new developments uh, where the development orders were uh, orders were later uh, entitled uh, adjacent to the Great Park. So, um, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to, you and I, we're going to have us a special time looking around. I want to know what your clipboard gets filled up with as you, as you take in those. And we're going to have a UC, for the first time, it'll be a UC team that will be represented in this competition. So uh, there's, I'm, I'm, I can't tell you how glad I am that we're going to do this, Dick. Well, great, and I look forward to it. Give me your email address, and I want to want to get all the ideas you have to make sure we get that in our mix for when we're asking questions of the people and doing some more polling. Okay. Well, we are. Well, well, we'll do that then. Uh, we're we've got to draw the show just to a close. I don't know about New Year celebrations that would be uh, out in the like in the ballpark there, but I don't know if that's uh, if you're going to entertain in the survey. What kinds of public convergence? Because I got to say that another experience of mine was Sunday at the Orange County Fairgrounds, and I got to tell you that melting pot of fun and. Uh, wholesome learning experiences it couldn't be replicated if had been changed into a a private development would have gone away we wouldn't have had this this month-long celebration so I'm I want to take stock of how much was coming of of that public good over there and uh, and I'm so glad that that use has been maintained and we're looking for where that uh, some of those public goods since the Great Park is 
it's the federal government, right? It deeded it over to the city for public use. So um, we're we're going to be looking closely at how the uh, the entertainment zone, uh, which will be a fee based use, correct? Yes. So that that now becomes a more of a private kind of managed uh, and uh, arranged kind of activity. Well, let's say when you talk about the Orange County Fair, which is one of the greatest, greatest events in Orange County, that's also fee-based. I mean, it's very cheap. You can get in and you can have a great time for not a whole lot of money, but it's also fee-based and it makes money, and I think that's a good model to use for various activities at the great park. Well, at the well at the, the fair, and then there's the Centennial Farm. I've, I don't, I've gone there hundreds of times to see the latest... Uh, the latest new uh, litter of pigs that are born and nursing away it's crazy uh, that that's that's for free and the uh, lots of the whole they have their own food and farm lab type of a thing that uh, I hope that food and farm lab will be also included in your survey for people to weigh in with what that demonstrates for um, and, and give the kinds of takeaways that it offers. And I can say, Claudia, we have a lot in common. That's the first place I go to also is the pigs. My my parents and my grandparents were farmers in Iowa, so I spent a lot of time with pigs. You don't get to see them much except at the county fair. That's right. So, but, I, but I'm hoping that on your survey at Irvine Cares that the food and farm lab will be a, a an item that people can weigh in. And, and maybe you can have them in the survey talk about to what extent they've already been using it so you get a kind of a, a user uh, of data uh, to assess that from. you got to send me your list of your ideas. I couldn't write as fast as you're talking, but they're all great, and we'll make sure they get plugged in. Well, we, we certainly hope so. Well, I know that uh, your time's real valuable, and we've got to close out the show. Dick Ackerman, former state legislator, Sen- with his title really is Senator Dick Ackerman, and he is now involved with the launch of the Irvine CARES, which has both a lot to do with w- what will be happening with the Great Park, adjoining build-out, and with some of the municipal political outcomes in uh, November. So we'll, we'll stay tuned with that, maybe uh, bring you up again on what uh, is happening as that involvement opens up some more, maybe closer to the election. So, Dick Ackerman, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you, Claudia. All right, all the best. So next, uh, today's the last day, folks. If you wanted to talk to the Federal Communications Commission about net neutrality, this is it. Then there's the uh, legislative session is coming to a halt shortly by August. So if you want, there's some legislation that's your pet issue, please be uh, boning up on that one. You can just search those bills or areas and find out how to weigh in on that. And then I just want to quickly mention there are a few movies, free movie showings, There'll be a film festival this Thursday at Crystal Cove. And the film uh, Thursday is Two of a Kind, which was filmed at Crystal Cove. The uh, next Monday will again be the third free film projected on the wall there outside the Seekerstrom Center. So the inestimable Jonathan Vitsa is going to preside over that crowd with participation games and movies rolling after that. So uh, enjoy that possibility too. Well, it's time. I thank everybody for listening. Talk with you next week.